So tonight we are going to hear about Sangharachita and the fireworks of Nietzsche, a title obviously coined to coincide with the date, it being November the 5th. But in a way, Nietzsche is a man of fireworks, so it didn't feel like too much of a too much of a kind of corny comparison from my side. I'll leave you to judge from your own side. Um, so we've just listened to the first section of the talk which has inspired this evening's uh, events, and that is Buddhism, Nietzsche and the Superman. So we've just listened to the introduction and... Well, I suppose the re- one of the reasons why I played it was because Sangharachita very much exemplifies the spirit uh, of the introduction to that talk. Um, when you look at Sangharachita's life, and though I've only met Sangharachita a few times, I do feel that I know a fair bit about the man through reading his biographies, listening to his talks, reading his poems, etc., What I'm struck about with Sangharachita is very much this attitude of not settling for second best, for developing himself, for evolving. And when I have met him, and I'm sure it would be the same if you met him as well, I've been very struck by this very kind of strong atmosphere of mindfulness. And I don't think it's just projection, maybe there's a little bit of that, but very, very mindful person, very, very kind. Um, he also has, as I'm sure those of you, most people will know in this room, a tremendous intellect and vision. Um, and in a way, though his intellect seems to have been intact from birth, uh, the stories about him reading Plato's Republic, for instance, when he was nine, uh, I think I was on Beza or Bino or something like that at that time, uh, it's incredible, you know, just picking up Plato's Republic and imagine a nine-year-old reading it, enjoying it. It's just incredible. <laughs> yeah. But I think even though he is a genius in many respects, he's developed this intellect. Yeah? He's read vigorously and widely. He's thought about things, etc., thought things through. Um, he wrote the Survey of Buddhism at 25, uh, a book which uh, Dr. Edward Konzer, who is seen by many as one of the most brilliant Buddhist scholars of the 20th century has described as the best introductory to Buddhism book that there is. And he'd actually written one himself. <laughs> so, I mean, he is quite an amazing guy, yeah? He's de- but he's developed all this, yeah? It's been a very, very conscious intention, I think, with Sangharachita. Some gifts, I agree, but nevertheless, a conscious intention. And there's a story from his biography, and I haven't been able to find it, so I can't be completely specific about this, but... I believe that he snapped at somebody one day and he said to himself, he took himself off and he thought about it and he said, I must never do that again. Yeah. And apparently he didn't <laughs> in that way. You know, I'm, sure, I'm sure he's not perfect, but you, know, you get a real sense from that about the guy's vision. A vision which is tinged with idealism uh, as well. Very, very idealistic man. Um, we have from his autobiography stories of him coming into contact with hypocrisy within the Theravada movement out in India uh, in those days. And his own tremendous idealism meeting this and causing him a lot of confusion, really. And in a way, he had to grow out of that situation to, to move on and develop spiritually himself. 
And of course, when he returned to England in the 60s, he met this kind of, not necessarily hypocrisy, but in those days, people didn't really want to practice. If you ask people to meditate for five minutes, they got a bit restless. They didn't want to do that. They just wanted to intellectualise, or so Sangharachita says in his autobiography. And he was outspoken about this. And because of this, he got asked to leave the, um, the English Sangha uh, in Hampstead. Um, yes, he got asked to leave. And he was the most senior bhikkhu in England at the time. Yeah, so you really get a sense that he was stirring things up uh, in those days, to be asked to leave like that. And we're told that when he was asked to leave, he just thought, good, I can now start my own Buddhist movement. I can start something that's far more effective. So he set about, uh, in a way, his lifelong task of trying to release the Dharma from the trappings of the culture, cultures of the East. Yeah. So I think, you know, by, by 25, he'd clearly already found the essence of the Dharma. You've just got to read the survey of Buddhism to, to find that out for yourselves. But when he came over to the West, he had to then translate it into our culture. So, obviously, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We do need some of the more traditional stuff, as it were, to connect us with the rest of the Buddhist world, to connect us with two and a half thousand years back to the Buddha. But we also needed to dispense with the unnecessary. Yeah? So Sangha actually set about distilling the essence of the Dharma so he could communicate it in our language using our culture as a medium for that where necessary. And, well, I'm really glad that he did. Yeah? I don't know about you guys, but uh, I really didn't know what to expect when I first walked into this building. Yeah? I'd looked up Buddhism in yellow pages and I hadn't found anything under B. Strangely enough, Buddhism doesn't have its own section in the yellow pages. So I'd almost given up, and I then thought, ah, religion. So I looked under religion, skimmed down, and the first Buddhist centre that I found was the Manchester Buddhist centre under M. Who knows where I'd be if I'd found something else before that. Yeah, but I really didn't know what to expect when I walked in. Would there be yellow robes? Would there be shaved heads? Would I be coerced into reading an extremely narrow range of books, which happens in some movements even to today? Would I be asked or encouraged to distance myself from the culture that I found myself in and any of the pleasures that it had to offer? I really did not know what to expect. But to my surprise, to my great pleasure, when I walked in the door, things were a lot more normal than I had envisaged. People were dressed fairly normally, not as trendily as I'd been used to, I must say. But uh, nevertheless... (laughs) fairly normally. Uh, People talked to me fairly normally, though I was a little bit freaked out by how kind people were and open, and they looked at you when they talked to you, and all that sort of thing. (laughs) But there was something different about the people. There was a sense of people being brighter and warmer, more pleasant, etc. They'd been affected by the Dharma without having to adopt a whole different range of cultural values. That was my experience. And as I say, I'm very, very pleased that this is the case, because I would have legged it uh, if it hadn't been. So I wonder how much we all take this for granted. I know that I do. 
Um, as a saying, familiarity breeds contempt, but I think that that's true in certain situations. It's probably more widespread to say familiarity breeds indifference, yeah, just taking for granted. And I wonder how much we take Sangharachita for granted. And sometimes I'm going to say Sangharachita, sometimes I'm going to say Bante. So Bante means teacher, and that's how he's often known uh, in this movement. So Bante Sangharachita, I'll use either or. So obviously these days he's stepped back from the order, he's stepped back from the movement, um, and few of us, if any, probably none of us in this room, have encountered the vigorous man who was giving the talk back in 1969. And he must have been a very, very impressive man. Yeah. I mean, he still is. You know, Obviously, he's 83 now, so he hasn't got some of the vigour that he used to have. But he must have been a very, very impressive man. Think about it. One man came back from England, kicked up a fuss with the status quo, got kicked out, started up something on his own, principally in a very, very small room that held about a dozen people in London, going off to festivals in his yellow robes and his long hair by this time. Yeah. And he has affected millions of people. Yeah. I don't think that that's an underestimate, actually. I don't think it's an exaggeration. Um, when you take into account India uh, as well, this man has affected millions of people. Champagne Hookham, a, a modern-day lama, um, who knew him at the time and went to advice to him in the 60s, somebody that I know well and spoke to the other month, she said of Sangaracha that he was 30 years ahead of his time, at least, uh, in the 60s. Yeah? Other Buddhist movements are only just catching up with how he has translated the Dharma uh, into the West. So, when I look at myself, all the views that I hold about the Dharma are fundamentally affected by Sangharachita. Yeah? Now, I just want to say something, that I'm not a sort of... I don't know how to sort of say this politely, but I'm not a kind of Bante yes-man. Yeah? I think for myself about the Dharma, and I think he does encourage this. Yeah? So there are some areas of Sangharachita's teachings and views on on life that I don't particularly agree with. Um, I don't think that you have to agree with everything. Um, I don't think Sangha actually would want to sort of encourage that. I think you'd want people to think for themselves. And I don't agree with the way that Sangha actually, uh, well, or in, I think I'll put it a different way. I, there's some areas uh, in Sangha actually's history where I wish he'd acted differently, uh, if I'm honest. But I don't really know him well enough to even pass that judgment on him, in a way. You know, whoever Sangharachita is, I'm not that close to him, and I don't know who the man is. And there's a number of people, as I'm sure most of you will be aware, there's a number of things on the internet criticising Sangharachita. And I've read a lot of it, and actually it has no bearing on the man that I've met uh, and been impressed by. Uh, I think it's a load of rubbish, uh, actually, uh, if you want my honest opinion. But... You know, obviously people are welcome to their opinions. Personally speaking, I have benefited tremendously, and I still benefit tremendously, from the clarity and the vision of Sangharacha, what he's brought to us. And in a way, though he's not around as much as he used to be, I'd really, really encourage you to get to know Sangharacha's teachings as best as you can. Um, 
wherever your practice kind of goes in relation to that, it is a very, very good fundamental grounding uh, in the Dharma. So, and I do wonder sometimes about these people criticising Sangharatra on the internet, etc. I've got a quote here by Jonathan Swift. Uh, and what he says is, he says, When a great man appears in this world, you may know him by this sign, that there's a confederacy of dunces conspiring against him. <laughs> so, whatever you think of Sangharatra, whatever you think of what you may have come across on the internet, etc., I think it's really worth bearing in mind that quote. Uh, a sign of the true individual is that they are despised by many in the population. Very interesting. So, let's move on now. Yeah, I think one of the things that I really love about Sangharachita, as I've alluded to, is the way that he has questioned the status quo. Yeah. First of all, when he was a young man in India, he was questioning the fact that people were paying lip service, as it were, to the Vinaya. Yeah, these monks were paying lip service to the rules that they'd undertaken, the precepts that they'd undertaken. And then they were acting completely differently when nobody was looking. So he questioned this. He then came back to England, and then he questioned the rules themselves. Yeah? So, and in a way, this is sort of what got him into trouble. He grew his hair long. He had relationships with a number of his disciples. And this freaked people out as well. But it's very interesting. He's gone from, as it were, questioning people not obeying the rules to questioning people obeying the rules. Um, when he was out in India, he questioned his whole life and cut up his passport and became a monk. Yeah? That's a pretty good, severe questioning of the status quo, isn't it? He wasn't fooled initially by the Hindu swamis that he met. Yeah? Some of them he was very, very impressed by, but he wasn't fooled by the ones who were saying one thing and acting in another way. He wasn't fooled, as I've said, by the hypocrisy of the Theravada monks out there, or the lack of spiritual vitality in England. Yeah? So, thankfully, Sangharachita questioned everything, and I think because he did that, what we inherit is a very clear representation of the Dharma, which is presented in relationship to our culture, yeah? that uses the genius that emerges from our own culture to help clarify and illustrate the points of the Dharma. So the Nietzsche talk, which we heard the introduction to, uh, is absolutely peppered with cultural references. Yeah? We have quotes by Blake, of course, Nietzsche. We have quotes by George Bernard Shaw. We have the views of Napoleon and Goethe, to name but a few, from that. And as we've heard in the previous seven talks, Sangharachita has already given us a panoramic view of human existence. He's looked at evolution from the point of view of biology, <coughs> history, anthropology, art, comparative religion, and so on. And in the talk, Buddhism, Nietzsche, and the Superman, we turn to Western philosophy and the vision of this most enigmatic man, Nietzsche, who Bante describes as the most important modern Western philosopher in terms of original thinking. Yeah. And if you listen to the talk, you can really tell that Nietzsche is a personal favourite of Sangharachita's. He says that when he was 18, he got a day off from the army down in Surrey, and he 
took off with a copy of this book, a book which most of the talk draws upon, a book called uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra. One of Nietzsche's most favourite and famous books. So he took off with this and he read it uh, on top of Box Hill. I'm not sure if he means by that he read the whole lot, because there's quite a lot to it, but uh, he's a bit of a speed reader, actually, Sanger, actually, so you never know. And what he says is, he says, as he read the sentences, they were like words written in scarlet letters across the sky. Yeah, so you can really tell that he's got a real kind of emotional connection with Nietzsche. So what I'd like to do is just give you a brief biography uh, of Nietzsche before moving on to discuss what Sanger Achita draws out in the talk. So we've got a picture here of Nietzsche uh, here. And... Even though you're far away, you still might be able to pick out the trademark moustache uh, there. I wouldn't like to have been at a dinner table with him while he was eating soup. Yeah. So Nietzsche was born in Germany in 1844. His genius was recognised earlier on uh, in his life. And he was given the chair of philosophy at Baal University at 24. Yeah. And he hadn't even completed his degree so can you imagine that? Can you imagine going off to university and handing in a few essays and they go, oh, here's a professorship. <laughs> you know, don't bother completing it. You just design your own lectures and we'll let you get on with it. Yeah? And that was at the recommendation of, a, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a very great German thinker at that time. So at university, he not only did his own lectures, but he studied philosophy, especially Schopenhauer. Interestingly, a man who was highly influenced by um, Buddhist texts turning up in Germany uh, at that time. He also studied music and was particularly enamoured with Wagner, a man who he formed a friendship with for a few years before falling out with him because he thought Wagner was genuflecting and bowing to Christianity, which Nietzsche couldn't, couldn't be around. So he broke up the friendship. At 28, he published uh, his first book, The Birth of Tragedy, a book which deals with in a way, the, the forces of order and chaos of Apollo and Dionysus uh, in ancient Greek tragedy. Uh, a very, very good book. Probably one of his most accessible books, uh, that one. Um, by the way, if you are interested in reading anything on Nietzsche, I would recommend that you don't read his texts, first of all. They can be very, very confusing. Probably better to read some secondary material. Uh, I read this... Uh, over the weekend. It's a, sh- a very short introduction to Nietzsche. Interestingly enough, the guy Michael Tanner is very critical of Nietzsche. Um, so you get a lot of where he thinks Nietzsche's gone wrong in that. If you want to read a very, very appropriate one, read Nietzsche and Buddhism. That's by a chap called Robert G. Morrison. It's in the bookshop. He's called Sagramati and he's an order member. And he wrote this book inspired by this very series that we're looking at this evening. Uh, the Higher Evolution of Man. Um, if you do decide to read the Nietzsche texts uh, originally, well, you know, just see how you go with them. They are a bit of a difficult read at times. Probably the uh, Genealogy of Morals uh, is one to read, or Beyond Good and Evil. Uh, they're probably one of the most accessible books. So anyway, he retired at 35 to write full-time, and he led an intensely lonely life. Hardly anybody understood him. He was a man who was 100 years ahead of his time. 
and he suffered from intense physical and mental pain throughout his life. In one year, he had just under 120 days of migraine, severe migraine. Can you imagine trying to live with that? And he spent most of his later on in his life moving around with the weather, away from stormy weather, which brought on his migraine. Yeah? Trying to avoid the, uh, the dark clouds that followed him around. He received hardly any recognition in his lifetime. And then at 45, went insane. Yeah? And it is thought, generally, that he contracted syphilis uh, in his late 30s. And that when this reached a kind of secondary and tertiary phase, it started to, as it were, affect his mind. Um, for the last 10 years of his life, he was kept, as his fame grew, as a bit of a showpiece by his sister, uh, who, by all accounts, was not a very pleasant woman indeed. Um, but it doesn't stop there. Even after his death, the dukkha continues. Yeah? His thinking was completely debased by his sister and her Nazi-supporting husband. Not Sorry, not Nazi, but German nationalist-supporting husband. And thanks to the way that they interpreted it, it ended up being used as Nazi propaganda. And I promise you, Nietzsche had no time for Nazis whatsoever. <coughs> he absolutely hated that sort of thinking. But it is attributed to him, to him that he is a Nazi supporter. There's so much misunderstanding about the man. Uh, it's amazing. So um, I remember a time when I was doing a solitary at Vadraloka and I was also doing a fast, uh, trying to get rid of the uh, results of my old hedonistic lifestyle. Uh, I did a three and a half day water fast at Vadraloka while reading a biography of Nietzsche by Curtis Kate. Very good biography, by the way. That's C-U-R-T-I-S-C-A-T-E. And um, I must say, it was one of the most intense experiences I had in my life. I was detoxing and reading about this man and this sort of very inspired, genius, miserable, lonely, dukkha-ridden life. And uh, yeah, I did feel rather shaken <laughs> uh, at the end of it. I would not recommend that uh, while you're detoxing and getting a headache at the same time. So uh, anyway, enough about that. Like many geniuses, his outstanding qualities and vision began to be appreciated in the following century. So, his writing, uh, particularly after the birth of tragedy, is a tremendous mixture of the poetic with profound aphorisms. Yeah? So, aphorism, aph aphorisms are short, pithy statements, bolts of lightning, as it were that illuminate rather like the kind of pithy sayings of the Zen masters. Yeah? Very, very similar indeed. They are designed to kind of transform our consciousness and Nietzsche uses them really to help us to see the possibilities of escaping from the routine of being ourselves. Yeah? As Sangharachita says in his talk, reading Nietzsche... It's like trying to make out the landscape of reality by flashes of lightning. We read an aphorism, then just for an instant we see things clearly. Then darkness. Then we read another aphorism and lightning flashes again. So, that's just by way of introduction really. Let's turn now to Thus Spake Zarathustra, which was written between 1883 and 1885 
to see what we can learn from the prophetic figure. That's prophetic as opposed to pathetic, by the way. Zarathustra, who is nothing more than a mouthpiece for Nietzsche's own views. So, the story begins in this book here. The story begins with Zarathustra, um, who is, by the way, no connection to the founder of Zoroastrianism. Uh, I don't know why he chose the name Zarathustra, I'm not sure. Now, Zarathustra has been up a mountain for ten years, yeah, as it were, meditating. And he decides that it's time to go and share his wisdom with the people. Behold, he says, I am weary of wisdom. Like a bee who has gathered too much honey, I need outstretched hands to take it. And he looks at the sun and says, like you, he says, I must go down. Yeah. And as a play on these words, go down, in a way, go down means, means many things, really. It means dying to old limits, I think. That's probably one of the ways that we can, that we can look at that. So as he descends the mountain, heading off to find some eager listeners for his visions, he encounters the hermit who saw him go up ten years ago. Now the hermit greets him and tries to persuade him not to bother to go back to mankind, who are vexatious and who won't listen. Far better, he says, to be a hermit, simply worshipping God. So anyway, Zarathustra says to him that he wants to go and they have a bit of a laugh together and Zarathustra walks off. He hears these words and departs. And when he's alone, he says, could it be possible this old saint has not yet heard in his forest that God is dead? So, words that we'll be very familiar with now, but... Nietzsche um, was one of the first people to really, really see this and to write it down in such a blunt, unapologetic form. Now, Nietzsche is often accused of being a nihilist. um, And what he means by nihilist when he talks about it is somebody with no values at all. But actually, Nietzsche was not a nihilist. Nietzsche was very, very concerned... He did feel that Christianity had limited mankind for 2,000 years. Yeah? A set of false views, in a way, which mankind had based their morality, their vision, their lives upon. But he was worried about what happened when Christianity gave way. So Nietzsche is anything but a nihilist, actually. And um, I hope that you'll see that by the end of the talk. And in a way, our culture today does partially fulfil Nietzsche's prophecy. Yeah? So, in another book, The Gay Science, and this is uh, from a time where gay had nothing to do with your sexuality, by the way. It meant kind of alive, ecstatic, happy, uh, etc., full of life. In another book, he says, God is dead, but considering the state of the species man, there will be perhaps be caves for ages yet in which his shadow will still be shown. And I'm not going to dwell on this point for long, really, but um, it's just a very interesting point, isn't it? How much is God dead in our own lives? How much do we still in some way have some sense of buying into this kind of father figure up in the sky? 
And um, I'll say a little bit more about that later on in terms of Sangharachita and his relationship to this when he first came over to England. But we'll leave that for now. There's two series of aphorisms that I want to concentrate on tonight. So Zarathustra then decides to enter the edge of the forest and not far into the forest he finds a market square in a village where the people of the town have gathered to see a travelling tightrope walker who has not arrived yet. So Zarathustra seizes the opportunity and speaks to them. So what does he say? And in a way this is a very, very good representation of Nietzsche and his uh, no-mucking-about style. So he says to them, I teach you the overman. Now what's meant by the overman, uh, and the German word for this is übermensch, uh, is in a way, I suppose, over and above man, uh, transcendent man, transcendent humanity. Yeah? Whatever man or woman is when they transcend the state that humanity is in now. Yeah? So that's what overman means. It's not a very satisfactory translation, I'm afraid, but uh, neither's Ubermensch. <laughs> so Nietzsche continues through Zarathustra. Man is something that should be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? All creatures up until now have created something beyond themselves. And do you want to be the ebb in this great tide and return to animals rather than overcoming man? He continues, What is an ape to man, a laughing stock and a painful embarrassment? And just so shall man be to the overman, a laughing stock or a painful embarrassment. So I'm just going to unpack this a little bit because it's a bit kind of dense, isn't it? So remember that Sangharachita is quoting this passage in his series of lectures on evolution, on the higher evolution of humanity. And we know that Nietzsche was influenced by Darwin's theory of evolution. Yeah? Thus spake Zarathustra has written 26 years after Darwin published his first major book on the subject in a sense, when he first came out to the public. Um, the book was The Origin of Species uh, in 1859. So, let's just say ta to Nietzsche for now. And get rid of his little poster. And I just want you to have a little look at this. Now, it will be familiar to some people, but I know, I'm aware that a lot of people... I suggest you can't see it move, um, because this is going to get in the way. Yeah, please turn the lights on, yeah, that would be a good idea. So what we have here is we have a triangle that appears in the Higher Evolution of Man series uh, here. Is it not working? Just press the little button that's on the switch. Oh yeah, you're on. Yeah, great. So what we have here is a triangle which Sangharachita has drawn uh, in his talk series, The Higher Evolution of Man. 
And basically, what we have on the hypotenuse of the triangle here is this kind of line of evolution. Yeah? So we start off on point zero down here. We might say that that was the Big Bang this time around, uh, if we believe that the Big Bang kind of happens more than once. Point one is where rudimentary human consciousness appears. Yeah? So what has happened between that time? Well, a lot. Yeah? We've had the Big Bang. We've had kind of all the sorts of chemicals forming, all the processes of physics occurring. We've then had kind of rudimentary lumps of matter forming, haven't we? Which have then turned into planets and galaxies and solar systems. And at a certain point, one planet arrived, which we now are on, as Marbodi kindly reminded us in our meditation. <laughs> and not only has this planet emerged, but it has then formed into rock and water. At a certain point, some sort of plant life has developed from inert matter. I don't quite know how that happened. Then the plants have proliferated and multiplied. And then most confusing of all, at some point, a plant has become alive uh, in the sense of a bacteria or something like that. And then this has emerged into the life in the ocean, all the fish, etc., then amphibians have formed, and then amphibians have turned into reptiles and birds and mammals. And then at a certain point, and in the scale of a whole calendar year, this point occurs on the last dong of 12 on New Year's Eve. Humanity, some sort of rudimentary humanity point has formed here. Yeah, so all that has taken place in around about 14 and a half billion years, apparently. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then, in the point between 1 and 2, point 1 probably, in a sense, is this ape yeah, that has become a laughingstock to the beginning of reflexive self-consciousness. Yeah. So at a, at a certain point, an ape has been walking around and then all of a sudden it has become aware that it is aware, yeah, in some very, very rudimentary manner. And the, the way that I heard about describing this a while ago, which has really, really inspired me, is at this point, the universe becomes aware of itself. Yeah? And I really, really love that. Yeah? Before that, it's almost like the universe was straining to become aware of itself. So life formed, I don't know how. It occupied all the points of the earth, so, in a sense, it could kind of see its own creation, maybe. And then at a certain point, we become aware that we are aware. That amazing moment there starts at two. And then point three is the beginning of transcendental awareness or insight. Yeah? So, if you listen to this talk series, in the Axial Age, an age that Sangharachita puts roughly between 800 and 200 BC, there's a flowering of human consciousness. Yeah? We go from a rudimentary reflexive consciousness to what we would call seeing into the true nature of things, insight, seeing through the illusion of self, however you want to put it, awakening. This forms at point three. And then we have a rather botched job of the infinity sign here, yeah? because this process is unending. Yeah? So, in a way, what we might say is point B here between 1 and 2, between the emergence of rudimentary human consciousness and reflexive uh, 
self-consciousness. Yeah, this is the human stage here. Privileged, sorry, primitive and civilized. And then this is perhaps the ultra-human stage. This is the stage of the great artists, the great scientists, the great visionaries in our culture. And then at point three, that is the point where insight emerges. So the overman, or the overwoman, the ubermensch or the uberfrau, would probably appear some point around about three. Yeah? And Zarathustra is very clear. He isn't the overman. Yeah? Zarathustra is not the overman yet. Zarathustra does not have insight. Yeah? So the enlightened being is the other side uh, of this. So, in a sense, what the quote that I just read from Nietzsche, um, which is something like, what is an ape to man? So what is point one to point two? Yeah, a laughing stock or a painful embarrassment. So too, Nietzsche says, from the point of view of people who have got insight perhaps and gone beyond insight, yeah, so too will man be a painful embarrassment to them. So there's, that's a sense of how much evolution's there. Now, Nietzsche believed that people like Plato, so the gap between Plato, roughly around about 0.3, and the average human being around about 0.2, that gap was more than the gap between the average human being and animal. It's quite interesting, that, isn't it? don't know what to make of it, but I'll just pop that one in. So, what's all this for, really, and why Sangharachita to put this in? Well, I reckon most of us in this room will be running on a default assumption. Yeah? Now, that default assumption is that evolution has reached its pinnacle with humanity in its present form. Yeah? We are the finished product. That's it. Yeah? And it's a very, very kind of seductive view, uh, isn't it? Because we're not around for a great enough period of time to see evolution, are we? We're just stuck where we are now. So we think this is it. And you just have to look at historians, all sorts of forms of academia, and throughout the ages, each age has thought they were it. Yeah? It's, it's a natural function of being a human being to think you're it uh, because you're in this time. But what Nietzsche says is all creatures hitherto have gone beyond themselves. And do you want to be the ebb in this great tide? Yeah? So I just want to emphasise that Nietzsche's overman is not just somebody who's a bit brighter or better at art. Yeah? This level of evolution is a different kind of being, a different kind of consciousness. Yeah? I'm not saying that we'll develop three heads or anything like that, but in terms of consciousness, it is a completely different kind. And I wonder if we are able, in our present states, to hold that vision. It's quite vast, isn't it? The Buddha, who is all of our potentials, remember, said before he died that a non-enlightened being could never know him. Yeah. Whatever an enlightened being is beyond point three, the point of insight, he is unknown. Yeah. Whatever this being is, is unknown. So, in a nutshell, the reason why I think Sangharachita goes into this is because our assumption that we are the finished product, yeah, keeps our vision small. Yeah? It keeps our life small. It stops wanting, as we heard Sangharachita say in the introduction, to take ourselves back. 
Yeah, we become satisfied. We think this is it. And if we can understand the magnitude of this universal vision, the boundaries in our small lives can crumble for an instant. Yeah, in this Nietzschean flash of lightning. Yeah, and perhaps we can glimpse the potential outside of all the assumptions that we've taken on from society. So, I mean, I really mean this. You might be listening to what I'm saying and not understand. It's a very, very hard concept to grasp that this is not it, that we are not it, that enlightenment is something completely beyond what we can understand now, perhaps. And maybe there's parts of it that are familiar uh, in hindsight to the enlightened being. I don't know. Yeah. So, in the words of Sangharachita, if we can really sort of plug into this vision, we're simultaneously lifted up and we simultaneously learn to look down on ourselves now, to become disgruntled and discontented. Yeah. And I want to add that Sangharachita very much emphasises the metta bhavna uh, in the movement as well. Yeah. And I think it's for this reason. Because we do need to be dissatisfied with ourselves, but we need to hold that in a positive framework as well. Otherwise it turns into self-hatred, um, which can never lead uh, to any positive growth at all. So poor old Zarathustra, he's just unleashed this bolt of lightning at the people in the crowd, but they don't want to listen to him. What they want is they want, his enter- they want their entertainment and they call for the tightrope act to begin. And as the act begins, Zarathustra looks up and delivers another bolt of lightning. Yeah? He sees this person on a tightrope, yeah? walking with a great big drop below him, and it inspires another vision in him. And he says the following. Now this is my favourite Nietzsche quote of all time that I've come across so far. And I've said it in a talk last summer, so you may have heard it already. Man is a rope stretched between animal and superman. A rope over an abyss. A dangerous going across, a dangerous on the way, a dangerous looking back, a dangerous shuddering and stopping. What is great in man is that he is a bridge and not an end. What can be loved in man is that he is a going across and a going under. Again, now I want to spend a little bit of time kind of unpicking this uh, before I sort of move on towards a conclusion uh, later on in the talk. So I just want to take this one sentence at a time, just so so we're clear what Nietzsche means by this. And then I want to, in a sense, get what we can draw out of this. Because we need, in a way, it's all very well having a vision, but we need to come away with some, we need to come away with some sort of decisions on how we're going to act uh, as well, don't we? some sort of zest for practice. Otherwise, talks are just a lot of hollow words, aren't they? So the first thing here is, man is a rope stretched between animal and overman. So in a way, what animal means is, animal is the blind conditioning, yeah? It's where we've come from. It's our evolutionary inheritance, yeah? And we all descend from the animals, yeah? We all do. We've all come out of the earth just in the same way as animals. This was something, of course, that the Victorians found very, very challenging to bear. Yeah? They found it very, very hard to bear indeed, didn't they? It was, you know, as Freud said, it was the second great blow for anthropocentrism. 
this idea that man is at the centre of things. Yeah? The first great blow was Copernicus, saying that all the planets were not evolving around the Earth at all, and he got burnt at the stake uh, for that wonderful insight. The second one was Darwin, saying that actually mankind was not put on this planet. Mankind, like everything else, has evolved from all the stuff that's come before. Yeah? So this is the animal, this is the instinctual. Just um, for way of completion, Freud thought that he dealt the third great blow to anthropocentrism, and that was discovering the unconscious. Yeah? So not only is, is man not on a planet that's at the centre of the universe, not only is man not a special being that's been put on this planet by Earth, but man's not even in control of himself or herself either, yeah? because there's an unconscious. I mean, in a way, I think Freud, Freud missed out Nietzsche here, actually. Because I think with Nietzsche's vision uh, of the higher evolution, uh, I think that he'd sort of added something to Darwin maybe, but uh, another time for all that. So yeah, that's where we've come from, yeah? That's the stuff that we don't want to look at, as it were, the animal, the blind conditioning. And the overman, of course, is our potential, yeah? Our evolved conscious self, yeah? No longer subject to the limitations of our history and our conditioning, yeah? So man is a rope. We are a rope. Yeah? We are what comes between those two extremes. A rope over an abyss. Yeah? So what's this abyss? Yeah, that seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? Well, the abyss, in a way, is our not knowing. Yeah? The abyss is our confusion. The abyss is our existential angst. The abyss is our response to the foresight, for instance. The abyss is also the terrible freedom that we embody. The abyss is what we experience when the self dissolves just for an instant. The abyss is what we feel when we're forced to go beyond our habits, as it were. So in a way, we're tied. We're tied between where we've come from and where we can go to, our potential. And in a sense, where that is happening over is our not knowing, our existential angst, our uncertainty. Yeah? So we find ourselves in a bit of a pickle, really, don't we? <laughs> yeah? If we care to look. Nietzsche then continues. Uh, a dangerous going across, a dangerous on the way, a dangerous looking back, a dangerous shuddering and stopping. Yeah, so the key theme here is danger. Yeah, and Nietzsche was really, really into danger. I don't know if any of you have got a birthday card with this following quote on, but in the Gay Science he says, "The secret of reaping the greatest I'll say that again. The secret of reaping the greatest fruitfulness from life is to live dangerously." Yeah, and we want to live dangerously, don't we? Deep down, I know I do. And I know that I don't at times. Yeah? How do I know that we want to live dangerously? Well, why is it that we go and watch all these adventure films? Why is it that we take part in vicariously in other people living dangerously and going on quests? And why is it that we come out feeling exhilarated? Yeah? Something like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, if that's your bag, uh, or another adventure story if it's not. Yeah? We feel exhilarated because while we're watching those films, all the parts of us that want to live dangerously that don't want to work as an accountant, that don't want to have a mortgage, 
Yeah, they get a chance to come out. They get a chance to express themselves, and that is why watching films like that are so thrilling. Yeah, we want to live dangerously. Something in us wants to live dangerously. But of course, what we have in our lives is we have this desire to live dangerously, and then we have the abyss. And the abyss is rather scary, isn't it? So at times, though we have this desire to live dangerously, we can't fulfil it. Yeah? We slump back into comfort and habit. Maybe we're so stuck in comfort and habit that we've forgotten that we want to live dangerously. Maybe we don't want to live dangerously. I'll leave that up to you. But uh, I reckon if we look deeply, we do want to look dangerously. So... This is what Nietzsche, this is what Sangharachita actually is advocating, yeah? that we live dangerously. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a bit. So the other bit is, what is great in man is that he is a bridge and not an end. How boring life would be if we were an end, as we are now, every one of us in this room. Yeah? We are not an end, we are a bridge. We are this thing that is trying to evolve away from our past conditioning, as it were, towards our potentiality. What, is, what can be loved in man is that he is a going across and a going under. And a going under, in a way, is what we can say as a dying of old habits. Yeah? Man, woman is great when they are dying to their old habits. But, you know, let's look, around our, let's look around at our lives. Let's look around at the people that we encounter. Let's maybe look at ourselves. Are we really living like this? Yeah? Are we living dangerously? Yeah? It's something to peruse, isn't it? It's something to think about. Yeah? Are we making the most of our life? Have we got this big vision? Have we got this bigger picture? Or is our life too caught up with the mundane routines? Yeah, and all of us will be, in a sense, stuck with a degree of responsibility, uh, etc. But everybody has space in their lives to harness all of that within something bigger as well. Yeah? So, I just want to recap a little bit before concluding uh, on all this. I take away sort of three main points, uh, I think, from this. And this is a bit of a recap here. Yeah? The first one is, let's have a think about, are we the finished product? Yeah, you know, and how often do you hear people saying things like, "Oh, me temper, that's just the way I am," you know, as if it's a foregone conclusion. And it's true, isn't it? We do have what seem to be deeply ingrained habits. Some of us might be a bit kind of reactive. Some of us might be a bit kind of sluggish. Some of us might be a bit dreamy. Some of us might be a bit kind of anxious and over energetic. Some of us might suffer from doubt and indecision. You know, we all have our own hindrances that we work with, don't we? But have a look back at your life. How many times have you changed? Yeah, we don't have the same views now that we did when we were younger. Yeah, things change uh, as well. But this view that we are the finished product can really, really destroy uh, our potential to grow. So the second point is, of course, we can evolve, yeah? Of course, we can change. Not only that, we must evolve, yeah? For those of us who are sensitive enough to pick up on this, dukkha, 
All suffering is a sign that we are stuck. Yeah? All suffering. I'm not talking about aches in the body. I'm talking about what we do with those aches in the body. Yeah? I'm not talking about the sort of things in life that aren't exactly a pint of beer and a sunset. Yeah? It's what we do with those things. Yeah? All dukkha is a sign that there's something in us that has stagnated, contracted and is not moving forward. Yeah? Life wants to move forward. Life wants to transcend itself. Yeah? And when it doesn't, we suffer. And this, this drive, this desire, rather confusingly, has been called by Nietzsche the will to power. Yeah? But um, you can see how kind of the Nazis sort of jumped on the bandwagon a bit when he uses terms like that, can't you? But what he means by that is this desire to live forward, to live forward. So the third point is, to truly change, we must, first of all, be dissatisfied with ourselves. Yeah? As I've said, you know, in a sense of being metaphor, yeah? to look at ourselves and to be dissatisfied. Yeah? To have an aim that we want to improve, develop, grow, evolve. The second kind of thing we need to do once we're dissatisfied with ourselves is to live dangerously. Yeah? So it's tempting, isn't it, to kind of shrink back to our animal comforts, as it were, away from the abyss. Yeah? It's very, very tempting. And if we look at the Buddha, if we look at the life of the Buddha, he's somebody who had, you know, if the stories are true, an amazing capacity to sit with the abyss, just to be there. I mean, can you imagine? He left, he learned all this meditation for five years. He followed the conventions of his culture and practiced asceticism. And then realised it didn't work, ate again, all his disciples left him and he sat alone in the forest. I mean, at that point, you've got to be thinking to yourself, what on earth did I leave the palace for? You know, what is going on? You know, the abyss must have been looming for the Buddha at that time. It must have been bigger than ever. Bigger, perhaps, than when he first saw the the three sites and left the palace. And yet there's something about that man who could stay with it, who had the confidence, almost the kind of the nutcase kind of part of his brain that could sit with that and carry on going. Yet this is what living dangerously is. So the group around us and the culture which we find ourselves in has very specific ideas about how to live. And, well, we get them rammed down our throat, don't we, in the media, uh, etc. So if we're going to live dangerously, we need to question these views And we need to sense, do they lead to a moving forward for us? Are they in line with this bigger vision? If not, as Nietzsche puts it, we need to shatter the old tablets of the law. We need to think again, don't we? We need to, as it were, start again and think for ourselves. Like Zarathustra, ultimately, who delivers this and gets laughed at, Uh, in the marketplace. If we're going to truly live dangerously, we need to, as it were, be comfortable with our views that are different to other people. We need maybe even to be prepared to be laughed at and still be confident in what we believe in. But perhaps such an adventure, such individuality, is not for us. Yeah? 
perhaps that's too big a task. Perhaps some of us don't want to grow that much because maybe people would start to notice us. But when we look at the life of Sangharachita, this is something that he has not shied away from uh, in his own life. And this, I think, is why he gave this particular talk. He's in a very, very good position to tell us to live dangerously, to send ourselves back, yeah, to think for ourselves, because he spent most of his life doing this. In fact, the more I thought about this talk and reflected on it and etc., the more I realised that there's quite a few similarities, in fact, between Sangharachita and the figure of Zarathustra. So I'll just share a couple of them. This isn't exhaustive. The first thing is, on a very, very practical level, Sangharachita came down from his mountain to share his fullness with us. Yeah? That mountain was Kalimpong uh, in the Himalayas uh, of northern India. The second thing is, well, when he first came to England, his message, like Zarathustra, was that God is dead. Yeah? And if you look at a lot of Sangharachita's early teachings, they were focusing around helping people to psychologically let go of this idea of a father figure uh, in the sky. This certainly happens in the old days, particularly. And um, a very, very good way to tell whether you've let go of the idea of God is to go into a room by yourself and say something, swear at him. And see what happens. Yeah? If you start feeling guilty, you haven't let go of God. Yeah? And I don't mean that and I don't mean that in a horrible way, by the way, because I think that God is vastly represent, misrepresented in Christianity. I think the original concept of God uh, could take people very, very far indeed before it was debased. So the other thing that Sangharachita has encouraged us to do in the same way as Zarathustra, is to think for ourselves. Yeah? To not get sucked into the group. But I just want to conclude now with a major difference, actually, between Sangharachita and Zarathustra, Sangharachita and Nietzsche. Yeah? And it's very simple, and yet very profound. Yeah? Unlike Zarathustra, Sangharachita has not only given us a vision, but a clear system to move across the rope, yeah? a framework in which to face and conquer the abyss, as it were. Yeah? Throughout the whole book, thus spake Zarathustra, Zarathustra's flashes of wisdom, they illuminate our predicament as human beings and the task that we face. But he tells us very little about what to do. Yeah? How can, what can we do to become this overman? Yeah? As Michael Tanner comments in this book, Nietzsche, a very short introduction, which I read over the weekend, Nietzsche's, comment of, Nietzsche's concept of the overman is like a blank cheque that Zarathustra issues without any directions for cashing it. Yeah? And we can say this about the whole of Nietzsche's works, as far as I've explored them. Apart from vague ideas of giving style to one's character, i.e. turning one's life into a work of art, and saying yes to everything, embracing everything and a few other little ones, yeah? 
There's very little in the way of methodology in Nietzsche's work. Simple basic instructions for us to follow. So thank goodness for the practicality uh, of the Dharma. Thank goodness that it's come to us in such an accessible form to the West. Thank goodness that we can take inspiration from Western culture, but not be stuck just with Western culture. Yeah? Which, for all its beauty and refined vision, is nothing without the ultimate ideals transferred to us from the enlightened mind. Yeah? And what I mean by that is the Western culture is beautiful and can uplift us only so far. Yeah? It's only when the Dharma is added to it that I think it completely flowers. So just one more thought, just one final thought before concluding. If Bhante, if Sangharachita is a Zarathustra-like figure, then though he's one not just with a vision, but with the tools for transformation, yeah? if Sangharachita is a Zarathustra-like figure, then that makes us the people in the marketplace. Yeah? So the question is, is will we listen to his message? Yeah? Or will we get caught up in the various distractions that the tightrope walker represents in the story that we've heard? Will we pick up this vision of self-transcendence? Will we live dangerously? Yeah? Or will we keep tiptoeing back along the rope to the familiarity and comfort of our old habits? Yeah? I'll leave that up to you to decide. So anyway, that's the talk. Thanks very much for coming. Thank you.